Guess what? What? You're an author. Oh, my God. You're right. You wrote a book. I did write a book. And it's called Stop Blaming Mothers and Ignoring Fathers, How to Transform the Way We Keep Children Safe from Domestic Violence. Right. And it's available on Amazon, Amazon. Kindle. It's softcover. It's hardcover. Yeah. And it's a book that lays out six myths that really dive into these gaps in the field that the safety of the models is meant to fix or transform. Mm-hmm. It talks about gender double standards. It has interviews with practitioners and, and survivors. survivors and practical things you can do. But it really kind of is it's good for anybody who knows the model or is new to the model. And uh, I'm really excited about it. It only took two and a half years to do. Okay. Well, go get the book on Amazon.com. And we're back. And we're back. Um, this is Partner with Survivor. I'm David Mandel, the Executive Director of the Safe and Taylor Institute. And I'm Ruth Stearns Mandel, and I am the e-learning communications and strategic relationship manager. And thank you for joining us again for the fifth and last. It may actually be the sixth. I hate to say this. I'm really bad at counting. Let's count. Depends if we count the intro one. But the last mini-sode, I think I finally learned how to say that, mm-hmm. on worker safety and well-being. Um, that we're doing. So okay. we, we kind of pulled this together. We started last year and we've kind of interspersed other things with it since then, but, mm-hmm. but we finally are, are getting it to last one. So this one is going to be about, uh, managing your own fears related to the safety of the family. And we've covered a lot of different things like mm-hmm. your, if you're, you've got your own issue as a survivor, if you grew up with abuse, if, you know, we've, we've covered a whole range of different things over the last few months. And so this one is really getting at sort of a meat and potatoes issue, I think, which is sort of, it's normal and natural to be afraid and good, actually, to be afraid for the safety of families when you're working with domestic violence. But how do you manage that in a way that's healthy for you as the worker and also good for the family is really what we're going to talk about in this very brief 15-minute episode. All right. Okay. Um if you want to reach us, if you like what you're hearing, just telling you in advance, you know, check out our website, safetytheotherinstitute.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can follow me at Twitter at David G. Mandel. Yes, and we have our virtual academy, which has a lot of our trainings, uh, individual bite-sized trainings as well, um, where you can learn the Safe and Together model, and that's academy.safeandtogetherinstitute.com. Right. So let's start right in with the idea that um, it's normal, uh, it's very human to be impacted by working with families that are experiencing Mm -hmm. violence. Like that's just, uh, I think sometimes people get afraid it's unprofessional or they get messages that they have emotions or feelings that somehow they might not be up to the job. And that's absolutely not true. That's a, that's very dangerous. Right. That Honestly. Is the, that, that is yeah, very dangerous. The, the ignoring of the, the reality of the vicarious trauma is dangerous. So we really do need to acknowledge right. that working in these environments is very traumatizing. Right. So so adding to what you just said, let, let's talk about the different ways as a professional working with domestic violence perpetrators, survivors with kids who've been impacted by domestic violence perpetrators. Um, let's let's list a number of things that, that may be factors for you. So one is that vicarious traumatization, which mm-hmm. is also called secondary trauma. Uh, I like the um, 
the work of uh, um, oh Laura. my Laura Vendor Lipsky. Thank there you. You. you know, we have a podcast by her about you know about trauma response. Mm-hmm. You know, and sort of it just just the way it changes us. So that that's really normal. Um, but the the next thing is worrying about that your actions can make things worse. Like if I talk to the survivor about some things, I talk to the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm supporting the survivor leaving or getting a court order, any of these things that, that I've heard over the years, practitioners be really fearful. I'm worried I'm going to make things worse. Mm-hmm. And, I, and again, I think that's a good, healthy, normal I think that thing. when you have that amount of power and right. control over a family's life, and you can make a decision to remove a child or to arrest somebody and put them in jail, uh, that you actually have a responsibility to self-reflect on your decision-making process and and have checks and balances for your own emotions and your own fears. And we'll talk towards the end of this this mini-sode about what you can do about that, but these are normal Mm -hmm. things and they are important to do. So the next thing is, you you may be influenced by other cases that have had severe outcomes, either your own or others, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even, unfortunately, your, your own family, and you may be projecting this into the case. And so there becomes a question, is, is your fear for the safety of the survivor and the kids in this case about them and about this perpetrator? Right. Or are you projecting on past history? And, and what we're really talking about is you being a good information gatherer. Mm-hmm. If you are fearful that you're going to make a similar mistake and you see that mistake everywhere, you're not actually looking at the evidence and information as it exists in this case. And you're projecting old cases or old fears onto it. And that can be very damaging. And that can lead to the wrong decision-making process. That's right. We're just honoring the reality. We want you to honor the reality of what's happening. In this family. In this family. Right now. Right. The, The next thing that may affect your fear for the safety of the family is... So many professionals are carrying, um, are really staggering under the weight of huge caseloads. Caseloads mm-hmm. that are really hard, right. uh, that they have no control over and uh, in terms of the amount of things that they're doing. And therefore, that their attention is being drawn in lots of different ways. And, and that sometimes challenges us uh, to have the time to analyze, like you're saying, paying attention to this family. Mm-hmm. Do an assessment, collect the data, think about it, think critically, right. and and that can therefore ratchet up our anxiety. Am I missing something? Right. Let me be conservative. Let me let me uh, act in a way that might be actually more kind of want to say conservative, maybe more aggressive mm-hmm. to manage risk. That maybe might be necessary if you had the time to slow down and look at this. Right, which is a very common practitioner mistake when you're burdened by a lot of different cases and you have time limits on those cases, so your practice has to be done in a very short order of right. time. You know, So really, we're just talking in this, interestingly enough, about really good information gathering and knowing uh, what you're capable of doing as a practitioner, what you're responsible for, what you're in control of, and what you're not in control of. And we'll talk about solutions in a minute about this. So we're not just laying out the problems. The next thing is you may be influenced in your fears by perceiving a survivor not acting, quote unquote, the way they're supposed to. Right. And so your fears may be, well, she can't control it. She's not doing what she's supposed to do. 
she's not being protective. So therefore my fears for the kids are, are amped up. And, and what may be missed there is actually that the survivor is doing exactly the right thing for her situation with this perpetrator, given his pattern. And you are not seeing the pattern. That's right. And so you are not seeing the danger. Right. And so the alarm and the emotion with which the survivor is operating to you seems out of step. That's right. That means you need to dig deeper. Right. And we'll talk about that. And the last thing we have on the list about sort of this idea of how do you manage your fears and the things that might be influencing it is if you lack confidence and skills working with perpetrators, assessing their patterns, then then you may overreact or underreact to the mm -hmm. danger level. Mm -hmm. And so in the case of overreacting, you may be looking and going, wait a second, all domestic violence perpetrators um, um, can do this, or, or I have no idea how dangerous he is, or I'm really worried. And then, like you said, there's no grounding in what's this perpetrator's pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no partnership. If there's no real partnership with a survivor, right. then the quality of your information may be less than it should be. Mm -hmm. um, and so just overall, that kind of perpetrator pattern-based practice really can, can uh, if you're not really deeply skilled in that, could increase your fear level. Yeah, I think also checklists increase fear level. Mm. Because, Can you say more? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's interesting because you look at medical practice and you look at domestic violence practice. There's, there's where you have a heavily checklist-driven uh, intervention strategy. You don't have as much information as you need about the context of the perpetrator. You have these open-ended threats, right? It's an open-ended threat analysis. She's pregnant, therefore, her risk factors go up, right? You just have these things that are dislocated from the reality of that perpetrator's pattern, from that context, from the reality of that family and the reality of their vulnerabilities, whether that's poverty or immigration. And so every possibility is open. And therefore, you're going to be much more aggressive about jumping in and intervening in ways that may be harmful to those that family. And you're making me think of one thing that's not on the list, but, you know, um, not assessing um, the system's response right. is can contribute to your fear mm -hmm. because you know one of the things that I will do regularly when I'm asking um, workers about the domestic violence perpetrator and the pattern of behavior, and then I'll say, "Well, how has the system responded or not responded to them? Right. And do those responses make things safer or less safe?" And I think sometimes knowing that the the perpetrator's reaction to systems, yeah can help you manage safety in a more, your fears in a more appropriate way. Yes, and it can, it can give you a, a greater look at the potential for danger as well. That's right. Yeah, if That's you right. know a perpetrator has a pattern of behavior of responding to law enforcement with accelerated violence, and, and you know that the police are going to be called on this person or you call the police on this person, then you have not taken into account the danger that's right. happening for that survivor. Right. And then the flip side of it is talking to the survivor. And, or for that police officer. Or the police the officer. That's right. And, <laughs> you put or, that police officer Or talking to the survivor and, and hearing the survivor say, no, every time child protection gets involved, he actually... Ramps up his... No, I'm saying the opposite, actually, oh, okay. is what I've seen. He actually decreases because mm -hmm. he doesn't want to get in trouble... Or, you know, so you get both, but yes. without that kind of um, checking in with the information, you know, then you, then you may not see it. So this is the, so now we're going to pivot to, so what do you do about it? You know, we kind of listed some issues. Mm -hmm. And the first one, shouldn't surprise anybody, 
if you've been listening to the podcast, are you familiar with the safety of the other model, is assess the perpetrator's pattern. And, and while that's no guarantee, really, when I say that's super clear, it's no guarantee, mm-hmm. um, prior history is still one of the better ways of figuring out what might happen in the future. Mm-hmm. And so that fact-based objective, getting that pattern of behavior and not just limiting it to this relationship, but to prior ones, mm-hmm. to other kids, to how he acts in public, all those things, really doing a full And good assessment. information gathering with a good partnership with the survivor where you can get information in real time, where you ask them how they believe that their abuser will respond right. to the system, what their fears are and what they've seen before or what the perpetrator has said they will do That's right. if the system becomes involved, That's how right. they have said they will That's use right. the system against the survivor as well. So none of this may make your fears go away. The goal isn't to make your fears go away, but to make them right-sized and to help fit you... reality. To fit reality, and, fit man- reality. And manage the case. And so, again, so assessing perpetrator's patterns, partnering with the survivor, the second thing that, that, that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, if we believe, which we do, that the survivor's the best source of information about the perpetrator's pattern, or one mm-hmm. of the best, mm-hmm. that we need to partner with them because that's one of the ways we're going to get those inf- bits of information and and it's also useful and it's really interesting um, that I had this experience where I got some supervision on a case from an advocate I knew, and and I told her what the survivor had said about 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 her partner, and she said, you know, you're saying based on your experience with hundreds of guys, this is one of the scariest guys that you've ever worked with. And she said to me, did you did you tell the survivor that? And and I said, no. She says, you really should go back and call her and mm-hmm. tell her that. Because that's a piece of information she doesn't, she doesn't have. have. Right. And so it's important that in partnering, it doesn't mean that you only listen to the survivor, but you do listen closely, but that your professional experience right. treated with humility right. can really add something to that conversation. And so I was able to go back to the survivor and say, you know, I need you to know this, but because... Uh, I've worked with hundreds of guys. I haven't quite been as afraid afraid for the safety of somebody as I am for you right now. And I think in that case, I'm using my fear tied to the pattern, mm-hmm. connected to supervision, right? But as a way to to help her better diagnose her well, situation. Yeah, in order for her to appropriately safety plan, she needs to understand the context of her own situation. And, and so giving survivors that information, particularly about a pattern of behaviors where you're deeply concerned for their safety is very important for survivors to hear. And also it's the way that you say it that right. matters. That's right. And I, and I, I don't want anybody here when we're talking about managing your fears that you don't get to say to a survivor, I'm afraid for your safety and the yeah. safety of your kids. Mm-hmm. But tie it back to the behaviors. Yes. And don't blame the survivor for the danger she's in. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think that's oftentimes what people do is they, um, uh, and I've seen this with high-risk teams, by the way. They're there ostensibly to manage risk to the adult survivor and to the children. You get the police together. You get advocates together. You get other other sectors together. And they get stymied. And then they, they start turning their attention to why won't she leave or why won't she do this? And so these systems that, that are designed ostensibly to support survivors and keep them safe 
sometimes get turned against them. That coercive protectiveness. That's right. That we talk That's about. right. You're not doing the right You're thing. You're not doing the right thing. That's right. So let me force you into That's a right. situation where you will be by not dealing with your abuser. That's right. By but by putting the clinks in, on you and the, the pressure on you. The clinks? The clinks. The clinks. The pressure on them. The clinks. I like that. That's a word you don't hear very much. The clinks. Next thing is, you know, and we've been talking about this, is get supervision from your supervisor, from peers. Talk about your fears. Talk about the steps you're taking to intervene with a perpetrator and to partner mm -hmm. with a survivor. Get a reality check. Allow people to ask right. you questions about what you're doing. Is this about this case? Is this about prior cases? Let them reflect back to you and say, I know you're afraid and you're really afraid, but I'm not hearing it or seeing it. Can you tell me what else you haven't told me mm -hmm. or that you're aware of in this case that's making you so afraid? So it's, it's, you deserve that supervision. That's really important. Um, you know, along with that. And you deserve, you deserve that, that support because when you start working with holding abusers accountable no matter the context you're in whether you're in law enforcement or you're an advocate or you're a child protection worker or you're a child and family worker a mental health worker addiction worker abusers do not like that and you are going to have to be able to have a network of support that's domestic violence informed that gives you the support not only for your own physical safety for the survivors you know, safety to the best that you can provide it in your context. But abusers need everybody to stand up to them. That's right. And learning how to do this and learning how to work through our fears and the challenges that come when we stand up to abusive perpetrators is something that we all have to learn together and we have to support each other in. Right. And and this is the natural lead into, you know, consider how others can help. You know, so if you have a high-risk team or an integrated service response team or a Marum or a Merrick, all these things, look to, to bring these cases to them because they can be helpful. Uh, we've been promoting the, the Safe and Together um, uh, Intersections meeting protocol, which mm -hmm. is a way to um, deal with cases with complexity, mental health, addiction, and domestic violence, which often are intersecting in the families. And so... It's getting that support, getting that environment, you know, allowing other people in and then using the ally guide or other tools, you know, to to really uh, to intervene, you know, with the family and support the partner. So it's really widening, looking at am I using everything at my disposal? Right. You know, have I really gotten everything? Am I am I um, uh, bringing in, you know, our choose to change toolkit, right. you know, to work with the perpetrator? Abuser accountability is not a singular action. Right. It is all of us united standing against those behaviors and saying, this is not acceptable. Right. Here's a different way to do it. You right. have a choice. But it's all being on the same page and saying that together. That's right. And also, it's professional if, if you can build or help the, the, the mom, for instance, build a network of her family and friends using right. like our ally guide. Yes. Which you just got some great feedback yeah. on yesterday mm -hmm. from somebody on Twitter. They said it was brilliant twice. It was mm -hmm. brilliant, brilliant. Everybody should be reading it. Um, you know, that as a professional can reduce your sense of fear and, and singular responsibility. Right. You know, that you may be feeling. And good practice supports good practice. When we get together as practitioners and we share our fears and our struggles, right. it supports good practice. Right. 
And the last thing is, and, and we really try for a lot of these things to not just focus on the individual practitioner, but the agency and the authorizing environment. And mm-hmm. and agencies and management needs to really look and say, are we making comfortable for workers to talk about their worries in a case and their fears? And as a, is that a standard thing? You know, and, and or are, are they- we punishing people? for admitting the wear and tear that this job has and punishing them for having trauma because of it. So it's very important for you to review your policies towards right. your workers. And are we pushing them to to move a case along? Mm-hmm. Whatever that means. You got to move this case along to so make a decision. And so they don't get a chance to really reflect on their fears and say, wait a second, is this a case where removal is 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 necessary or is it or is it not? So, so this environment where workers are asked, you know, what's your biggest worry in a case? Um, you know, just inviting them into that is a culture in the agency is so important. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is our, this is our down and dirty. We identify a problem. We talk about solutions and our last Minnesota around worker safety and well being. And, uh, this is great. I All think right. I feel really glad that and we if did this. You have any suggestions for future uh, podcast episodes or minisodes? Please contact us and let us know. We uh, love your suggestions and want to know what your needs are. So follow us, like us. You know, check us out on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Uh, we are on the the internet. I don't know where on Instagram. <laughs> we're everywhere. Safe together at safety other. So anyway. And, and we're, we're out. out.